Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 12 a Dukabor whodunit, the mysterious death of Peter Verrigan. On the morning of the 29th of October, 1924, at approximately 1 a.m., an explosion was heard somewhere between the small rural communities of Grand Forks and brilliant British Columbia. The source of the explosion, a CPR rail car in which 21 people were seated, eventually claimed nine victims. Of the nine victims, one was John McKee, a recently elected conservative member of the provincial legislature, and another was Peter Lordley Verrigan, the spiritual leader of British Columbia's Dukabors, a religious sect that settled in Western Canada from Russia in the late 19th century. Now, as of today, the incident has been deemed a murder, yet no culprit has ever been charged for the crime. An investigation launched in 1960 by the RCMP was closed unsuccessfully, yet due to the victim's status as the leader of a closed-off religious community, theories abound as to whom was truly responsible. Depending on who you ask, the answer varies as wildly as jealous lovers, Bolshevik assassins, the Canadian government, the Ku Klux Klan, and even Verrigan's own son. A reminder, as always, you can find us on a number of different platforms. You can find us on Facebook and SoundCloud just by searching Cool Canadian History. You can, of course, get our podcasts for free on iTunes. You can find me on Twitter at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. And, of course, you can always find us at our home, www.coolcanadianhistory.com. Now, if you go to our website, at the bottom of the page is a little PayPal button that allows you to donate to the podcast. Every donation is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this bi-weekly history podcast. Now, before we get started, I'm sure the question you're asking yourself right now are, who are the Dukabors? You see, the Dukabors are a religious sect, a social and ethnic group that arose from Russian Orthodoxy sometime between the 17th and 18th centuries. Now, because of their pacifistic ideals, the Dukabors came into conflict with the Tsarist government, which of course demanded military service from all of its subjects. Facing harsh discrimination because of this, many decided to migrate to Canada. With the help of the Quakers, who were another pacifist religious sect, and interestingly, with help from Leo Tolstoy, the writer of the great Russian novel War and Peace, uh, he donated the proceeds of his novel Resurrection to the Dukabor Migration Fund, 
With all of this help, the first Duke of Bourse settlers arrived in Canada in 1899. The Canadian government agreed to allow the Duke of Bourse to settle and agreed to their pacifist leanings. The group would be exempt from military service. The largest portion of the Duke of Bourse originally settled in homesteads in Saskatchewan, where the community proliferated with some success. After having Dukabor land purchased by speculators in 1907, however, the then spiritual leader of the community, Peter Verrigan, felt it necessary to increase the community's land holdings to ensure its political and economic independence. Verrigan then journeyed to the Kettle Valley in British Columbia, where he found land whose relative isolation and better agricultural conditions made it an ideal choice to establish the British Columbia Dukabor community. By 1917, Verrigan established himself as the perpetual president of this new Dukabor community. Now, the Dukabors had always had a fairly antagonistic relationship with the state, both federally and provincially. In British Columbia, the Dukabors clashed with the government over two key issues. The first one is the refusal to adhere to the Births, Deaths, and Marriages Registration Act, which was an act that Dukabors felt gave the government the means to conscript them into the army. They also showed an ardent unwillingness to submit their children to all aspects of a public state-funded education, something they feared would teach their children in manners contrary to the Duke of Bourbon religious teachings. The government, however, would use numerous legal methods to attempt to coerce the Duke of Bourbon into adhering to their demands, while the Duke of Bourbon community found numerous ways to resist. Now, a more radical group within the Dukabor community, known as the Sons of Freedom, were the most public in their efforts to oppose the BC government. The Sons of Freedom were known for a variety of protest methods, including mass nude parades, that's right, nude parades, and the burning down of public and private property, particularly schools and their own buildings in protest. Now, no one was ever hurt in these uh, arson protests. Now, the work of the Sons of Freedom caused serious consternation amongst British Columbians and even Verrigan himself. Verrigan labeled them anarchist nudes. And thus, Verrigan sought to distance him and the mainstream Dukabor community from these more radical members. Verrigan's summer home, interestingly enough, was burnt down in early 1924, which many thought was either an actual assassination attempt or a form of protest against Verrigan's attempts to distance the community from the Sons of Freedom. But it was later in 1924 that Verrigan was killed when an explosion ripped through the CPR rail car he was traveling in. The fact that the Dukabors had such a contentious relationship with the government, and the fact that the community was heavily closed off from the non-Dukabor community, very much affected the way Peter Verrigan's death was investigated. On the day following the incident, initial reports claimed the source of the explosion was accidental. Large gas cylinders used to light the coach seemed to be the cause. However, after officials apparently discovered the tanks intact, Charles Murphy, the then general manager of the CPR, was quick to claim that an infernal machine, and I quote, an infernal machine placed undoubtedly with an intention to kill Peter Verrigan caused the explosion, end quote. Following this report, several British Columbian dailies then published revised accounts of the incident, making it clear they now believed that the radical elements within the Dukabor community were plausible suspects. On the 29th of October, the Globe and Mail confirmed the use of dynamite in the incident and claimed that, and I quote, 
Peter Verrigan had many enemies among the fanatics who wanted him to discard modern appliances, end quote. The report then continues by stating that, in some quarters it is argued that a time bomb was used to get rid of Verrigan. The press release issued by Charles Murphy also mentioned that Verrigan's life had, and I quote again, been threatened lately by fanatics on account of his progressive tendencies. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Now, after initially blaming and investigating radical segments of the Dukabor society, the investigation met a dead end, resulting in no criminal charges being laid. Yet, in 1932, a new lead surfaced with the testimonial of a newly questioned CPR locomotive engineer, a man named Joseph Blaney, who claimed that he had seen several Dukabors come aboard the train and place luggage directly beneath where Verrigan sat in the train compartment. Even more interesting is the connection he makes between one of these men and a mysterious Russian watchmaker who appears very often in police reports during this period. The man in question, Metro Grishin, alias Dan Grenner, alias Dmitry Grenchuk, alias Jim Mitgren, alias Mitgrain, alias Mitgren, traveled through the Dukabor community between 1924 and 1930. This smooth talker was first mentioned in a report in November of 1924, where, when interviewed under the alias of Dan Grenner, he claimed to be traveling around the community repairing watches. What is interesting is that throughout his stay in Canada, Grishin seems not only to have inspired suspicion from all authorities he encountered, but any time he was detained, he was quickly released. Authorities now worried that his watchmaking skills might be valuable to the Dukabors in setting alarms or timing mechanisms on bombs like the one that supposedly killed Verrigan. Now, with the connection of this Russian citizen to the crime, it's important to understand that public opinion and police interest seem to veer in an altogether new direction. This is indicative of Western fears of the spread of the Soviet Union and Bolshevism. Authorities and reporters alike began to theorize that the explosion was likely the result of a Bolshevik plot. Possible theories as to why the Soviets may have wanted to murder Verigan are his apparent resistance in having Dukabors repatriated to the Soviet Union, and his subsequent criticism of Soviet leadership. This connection to Russia was compounded further by the fact that Verigan's son and successor, Peter Petrovich Verigan, who we'll now call Verigan II, was seen by many as a potential Soviet sympathizer who may have been supported by the Soviet government. This claim stemmed from the fact that Verigan II had, at the time, members of his extended family working as minor officials within the Soviet government. Apparently, this fact alone was seen as ample proof to judge Verigan II as a Soviet agent. Now, in the early 1960s, thanks to new evidence consisting mostly of eyewitness testimony collected by a reporter named Sima Holt, who was working for the Vancouver Sun, the investigation into the death of Peter Verigan was once again reopened. 
Now, Simmerholt's work on the subject of the Sons of Freedom consisted of very harsh criticisms of the Ducabor way of life. She described the Sons of Freedom with such colorful descriptors as backwoods mobsters and naked nomads. The work itself, Holt's work, is so spiteful that it has even been called hate literature by a British Columbian documentarian named Larry Iwashin. Now, across all the literature examined dealing with the death of Peter Verrigan, Holt is the only author who directly and definitively accuses any one person of being responsible. You see, Holt weaves the narrative of Verrigan II as a greatly indebted and immoral man who lived a lifetime of bitterness towards his father. And she argues that it is clear beyond any doubt that Verrigan II was the man who masterminded the train murder. Holt's work did in fact convince the RCMP to reopen the investigation. However, this led nowhere. None of the evidence accumulated by the police helped in shedding any more new light on the case, and many of Holt's original eyewitnesses had either passed away or were now suddenly unwilling to testify. The matter was dropped for a third time in 1965. Now, the very few Dukabor authors who have written on the Dukabor community have generally avoided this topic altogether. In fact, many within the community believe, and some still believe, that Verrigan was assassinated by none other than the Canadian government. Verrigan II himself had said he knows who killed his father, and cast suspicions towards the government. Yet the code of silence within the Dukabor community continues to baffle any attempts to crack the mystery. In conclusion, the still unsolved death of Peter Lordly Verrigan remains one of the most fascinating mysteries in Canadian history. Over 90 years have passed since the incident, and innumerable theories exist, ranging from the plausible to the absurd, and have been put forward by the public, the authorities, reporters, and even scholars. Because of the wildly varying nature of opinions on the subject, forming a specific narrative to the development of these theories over time is difficult, but let's give it a shot. First, to receive the blame in the initial aftermath were the radical elements within Dukabor society, the Sons of Freedom. With their use of nudity and arson as methods of civil disobedience, these people frightened British Columbians and offended sensibilities of the era. Later on in the 1930s, as a suspicious Russian citizen was associated with the crime, the Bolsheviks and not-radical Dukabors became the most plausible explanation for the murder. As fear of the spread of communism proliferated in British Columbia and Canada at large, the Dukabors' foreignness was emphasized, and their communal lifestyle led to the puzzling phenomenon of the group being labeled as communists. The Red Menace lurked in every shadow, and a community which Canadians saw as still having strong ties to the Soviet Union was naturally seen as a potential source of Soviet intrusion. Finally, in the post-World War II period, a Vancouver Sun reporter releases supposedly new information placing the blame on Verrigan's son, but a reopened investigation goes nowhere. And that is where it remains today, as one of Canada's longest-running unsolved mysteries. A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on SoundCloud, And you can find us at our website, www.coolcanadianhistory.com. And of course, you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. I want to thank you for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Take care.